Today's tagline is, the good news is real. But when you see something like that, <laughs> in fact, in a moment of a questionable parenting, I showed that clip to my four-year-old daughter. I don't think Natasha knows. No nightmares yet, but I did have to take some time convincing her that the dinosaur is not real. Um, but that ad's tagline, it just got real. It's, of course, ironic, isn't it? I mean, it's set in Hollywood, the capital of make-believe. Not only are the actors uh, pretending to be characters, they're not, they're acting. Um, if you didn't know already, the dinosaur is not real. But it's quite a thing to consider how far we'll go and how far we've come, actually, to create reality that bends that of true reality, bends the rules of true reality, um, all for our entertainment, right? And that's Hollywood. That's Hollywood, the, the pinnacle of make-believe and imagination run wild, although those of us with kids, I'm sure, would probably think their household challenges that title with the imaginations of our little ones. But that's Hollywood. What about the real world? Everything makes sense there, right? No. False advertising, fake news, there's quite a lot out there claiming to be real, right? False advertising. We're, we're, we're often fooled into opting into something that, that ultimately turns out to be something it's not. Some call it clever marketing, but really at its core, it's, it's, it's just deception, right? And fake news. Although the term is recently new or more popular, fake news has been around for a long time. I mean, the, the, um, the motive for fake news is actually not all that much different from false advertising. I mean, there's a benefit to gain. It might be money. It might be approval, ratings, status, or even a reputation to protect or restore. And today, it's becoming more difficult to find news that we can trust, news that's, that's, that's real about current events. I don't know about you, but it's exhausting and painful sometimes because there are consequences to buying into false advertising, lost time, uh, lost money sometimes, lost relationships even. So it's no surprise that uh, we have become a very skeptical people, that anything that claims to be good or the least bit good must be analyzed before we can believe. We say it's too good to be true or I'll believe it when I see it. And that's our posture towards news in general. And that's okay. That's okay. So why would we approach the good news any differently? And by good news, I mean Jesus Christ. He is the good news. The series we've just begun, Good News at Last, makes space for us to investigate, question, lean in, discover or rediscover Jesus. And for some of us here, it may be the first time to really consider the claims of Christ, and I'm so glad you're here. Still, for others, we may just really, if we're honest, we're more fans of Jesus than followers. We love his, his teachings, his doctrine. We think he was a good man. But the penny, penny hasn't dropped from our head to our hearts. And still, for many of us here, this series covers something very familiar, the gospel. And it's something that we aim to put near and central in our lives. But regardless, I'm here today to say regardless of where we are or, who, or where we're at, I invite us to lean in today. Lean in. You may think it's not worth looking into. You may think that you've already... Put your trust in Christ so that you don't need any more convincing. And uh, I say that we're all missing out. We're all missing out if we don't seek to know whether the good news is real and to seek, it, seek to know it even more. 
And it's the only time that that famous phrase that we see on TV, but wait, there's more, is deeply, life-changingly, if that's a word, real and true. On believing whether the good news is real, uh, Pastor Tim Keller uh, in New York City, he says this, don't believe because it's relevant, don't believe because it's exciting, don't believe because it'll change your life. No, believe because it's true. And because the good news is true and real, it's because that it's true and real that it's relevant, that it's exciting, and that it meets our needs. Many have come along in history, history of the world, and claimed to be divine, but only to to only influence a small amount of people and then ultimately turn out to be frauds. Still, others have been largely successful in influencing on a global scale. They may not claim to be divine or deity, but they've been incredibly influential on a global scale. But there's only one man who fits both categories. Even Buddha, he didn't say, look to me. He said, look to my teachings. He didn't say, look to me, look to my teachings. But Jesus, he said, look to me. And he also has been globally influential for 2,000 years in counting. One man who not only made incredible claims, but he also got a lot of people to believe. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I am the only way to ultimate reality. I am the only way to ultimate reality. Now, that's a claim of massive magnitude, right? We can't dismiss or gloss over it without just taking some time to study it. We can't just doubt it's real. We had better know whether or not it's real. Keller puts it this way. You receive a letter in the post, and it says that you are the long-lost heir to the English throne. What do you do? Reject it? Ignore it? Keller says you're not even going to make a phone call? Or, put it this way, you get a letter in the post or an email these days from SARS saying that you owe 400,000 rand in back taxes. What do you do? In both situations, we better not doubt that news is real. We had better know for sure whether it's real, because if there's a chance it's real and we miss it, our lives are ruined. Do we have attention now? I, this was a wake-up uh, in, in, in this journey that I've taken this, 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 this week. I hope it is for you as well. We are on a journey through a rich account of the Gospel of Mark. As a church, we're committing quite a huge chunk of this year to studying Mark and breaking it up uh, between other series throughout the the, the year. In fact, Mark was the very first gospel that I actually took seriously, almost 20 years as a university student. And not coincidentally, it was the same time when my faith in Christ and experiencing God skyrocketed. 20 years later, this text continues to come alive in fresh ways and fuels my relationship with God. So lean in today, won't you? Let's pray. Father God, open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, um, so help us to see what's true and real. Speak to us, spirit of truth. Prepare our hearts to receive and prepare our hearts to respond today to what you have to say. Amen. Now we've called our first sub-series in Mark, Good News at Last. Last week, if you weren't here, Luke kicked off the series by considering the intensity of waiting for news. Now, all of us have experience with waiting 
for news, waiting for good news uh, specifically. Maybe it's waiting for test results, any kind. Maybe it's waiting for that callback from the audition or that job interview. Or maybe on a much global, more global scale, or larger scale at least, waiting for election results. Or waiting for ESCOM to turn the lights back on for good. How about that? That's good. That would be good news. But today we're looking at the announcement of that good news. We're looking at the announcement of that good news. The good news. As I mentioned before, these days feel like the most confusing times. But, in fact, the times the book of Mark capture were a very similar time. Not much different in terms of confusion. Let me explain. In the book of Mark, as it opens, the people of God, the Israelites, have been waiting for 400 years since the last time they heard from God. Imagine this, 400 years before Mark uh, begins, at the end of Malachi, that's the last book in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was in Palestine under the power of the Persian Empire, which is now modern-day Iran. At the end of the Old Testament, the the royal line of David was still well-known to the Jewish nation, and they expected very much the promised Messiah to be born in his line of David as God had promised But despite being under the control of Persia, the nation of Israel was still quite cohesive and united. But 400 years later, as we open Mark in the New Testament, we see a very different world. The Roman Empire is large and in charge. Not only that, the Romans have spanned the length and the breadth of the civilized world. Center of power has shifted from, from the east to the west, center being in Rome. Palestine was still a puppet state with the Israelites never gaining their own sovereignty. And the puppet king was on the throne, but he was a descendant of Esau, King Herod, not Jacob. And to make matters worse, instead of one temple in Jerusalem, several synagogues sprung up. And the high priests, who were uh, charged with overseeing the religion of the Israelites, are no longer from the line of Aaron, but they're hired priests, hired priests who are more politically positioned than called by God. And lastly, the Israelites have also split up into three parties, the two major ones being the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So if you were living at the time and you were seeking truth, God's truth, you'd struggle to find it. You'd struggle to find it, much like we struggle today with all the things going on. Those three parties, by the way, of Jewish religion, they all claim different ideologies and truths, even though they all originated from the Old Testament. So they had a completely divided uh, um, it had created huge division. So between the Roman Empire, divided religious leaders, and God's people, they were scattered. They were divided even amongst themselves. So it was this world of confusion into which Jesus was born and raised. And then he turns about 30 and he launches his ministry. Jesus' earlier years and his birth are outlined in the other three Gospels. He had been born of Joseph and Mary, and so was considered a descendant of David's line, fulfilling the prophecy that the coming Messiah of the King of Kings would be of David. But how were God's people supposed to know who Jesus was? I mean, why would they have believed him to be any different from all the other uh, rabbis and Jewish leaders of the time? Part of the answer uh, to that question is this, and, and even though it may not have been obvious to the people of the time, But it was the launch of his ministry on earth, the official moment Jesus entered public ministry. That's the event. That's the event we're looking at today. Let's read Mark Mark 1, chapter 1, uh, and then uh, verses 9 to 13. I'll read. It'll be up on the screen. You can uh, look at it 
on your Bibles or devices. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Only five verses today, but there's so much happening here. Let's dig in. I mean, last week we heard about John the Baptist and who this guy was. He was one of the first witnesses to Jesus' ministry launch. And in the Gospel of John, different John, uh, but in response to being asked about his own work, John the Baptist said this, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So in other words, John the Baptist pointed to the coming of the long-awaited Messiah King. He had a following of his own disciples, John the Baptist did, and he was a well-respected man of faith. John the Baptist's main message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This was the first announcement of good news into this messy, confusing culture since the angels and shepherd announced it at the birth of Christ. That means there were, there were 30 years, three decades of mostly silence since Jesus', since Jesus miraculous birth. And in that time, he lived, well, quite an ordinary, albeit sinless, life. And now, suddenly, here we have Jesus appearing to this radical prophet, John the Baptist, who had a whole bunch of people following him from a small town, Jesus being from a small town, like a nowhere town of Nazareth, to come and be baptized. But why was Jesus asking John to baptize him? After all, I mean, John was baptizing people who were, of, they were doing a baptism of repentance, repentance of sin, and, and Jesus was sinless. So there was no need for repentance. And why would he ask John, who many at the time would have seen as more popular, um, better perhaps, person to this up-and-coming wannabe rabbi? But based on his, his response, John the Baptist thought the same. He said this, in Matthew 3, we, we see that John tried to object. He said he was the one who needed to be baptized by Jesus. And that would make sense. Well, to help us understand what was going on, let me, let me say a few words about baptism, particularly in the context of what we're reading. So in first century Judaism, baptism had a meaning, had a different meaning to what we understand it to be now. So back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God instructed his people to cleanse themselves from ritual impurities. And cleansing primarily fulfilled the legal requirements of the time so that, uh, called ritual purity so that, so that Jews could sacrifice at the temple, which was part of what worshiping God looked like then. And in order to bring any offering to God, one needed to be able to approach him. And they understood that anything unclean, them, couldn't approach anything clean, God. So they had to be cleansed. And one of the ways they did this was a form of ritual water washing. Everyone in those times would have understood that baptism represented the act of becoming clean in order to worship God. So, no one in these scenes are particularly confused about people being baptized. But again, back to this, Jesus wasn't repenting of sin, and there was no legal written requirement for Jesus to be baptized in order to inaugurate his ministry. So why did Jesus have to become baptized? Well, there's three reasons. There are many more, but I'm sure these, these in my, my mind, are the top three. He was submitting and dedicated his life to the will of God. 
He was submitting and dedicating his life to the will of God. The baptism, Jesus' baptism, signaled the last act of Jesus' private life. It was handing over his will to the Father and the beginning of his public earthly ministry. It was also a great sign of humility because, uh, and also in the fact that he actually went through the traditions that the people were doing. It's a great sign of humility by doing this. And he demonstrates humility and submission to God and asking John to baptize him. Second, he was endorsing John's ministry. It was to fulfill the promise that God had given John of the coming Messiah King and the way to identify him. So it was Jesus' way of saying, yes, this man who baptizes me really is the front runner of the Messiah. And the third reason why Jesus had to be baptized is that Jesus was identifying with the very people he came to save. He wasn't aloof when he came to this planet. He was fully human, one of us. Although he didn't sin like us, he deeply empathized with our weaknesses and temptations. So now up to this point, the historical account is generally straightforward and believable. Something that was foretold long ago uh, is happening. Some guy, some wild guy, is, is baptizing people to, to confess their sins and turn their lives around. And then as he does this, he takes the gap to tell those people that the guy coming after him is the real deal and will change your life from the inside out. And it's happening here in this passage. Jesus came to John, who testified who Jesus was and gave credibility to the launch of his mission. Awesome. But what happens next is something else. Let's read 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's written so matter-of-factly, you know, no, no fancy words, really. No hype. This is incredible. If we think about it, allow this to sink in. Heaven is torn or split open. So there's this physical, vis- physically visible event that's happening. Some, something like a dove, or actually a dove, one of the, one of the um, Gospels say so, came down from the sky and rested on or hovered over Jesus. And at the same time, there's an audible voice from the sky that makes a declaration. Clearly, something is extraordinary uh, that's happening here. We see God the Father and God the Spirit incredibly making their presence known together with Jesus the Son. There's the voice of the Father expressing an affirmation with words that every son wants to hear. But the nature of this declaration was not only a sealing of sonship, It was a commissioning for his ministry to at last begin what Jesus was born into this world to do. And to further mark this occasion, the Holy Spirit himself came down from heaven in the form of a dove, a symbol of purity and peace, on Jesus. So just as the world had been made through Jesus at creation, by the will of the Father, so now we see once again this beautiful interaction of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, in this moment of witnessing the beginning of Jesus' mission of salvation. Now, something about these words that Jesus spoke, something, sorry, that, that, that Father God spoke as Jesus came up from the water, these were significant to the people who knew the Old Testament, which those uh, on look, looking on would have, would have known. It comes from two ancient prophecies about the coming king. One was in Psalm 2, which was a song of God's anointing a king in Israel. I have installed my king on Zion. 
You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule them. And the second one is in Isaiah 42, which is the prophecy of the suffering servant of God. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. God's announcement after Jesus' baptism was his title and his job description, suffering servant for the sake of the world. 19th century English pastor G.S. Barrett put it this way, the baptized closed Jesus' private life and began his public ministry. And I like this. He had who gone down into the water, known known to men as son of Mary, came up thence declared to be son of God. Wow. So Jesus launched his public ministry, or this is the announcement of it, and and with God's approval and endorsement, and the very very next thing that happens is he goes out and tells, no, he leaves alone in the wilderness for 40 days. At once the Spirit sent him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. What? After, so after three decades of being on earth, before he finally steps out and announces his public ministry, marked by this incredible supernatural event, by the way, after which most everyone there would have probably followed him instantly, to rally and support and launch a mission to bring freedom to God's people, Jesus disappears into the wilderness alone for a, almost a month and a half. It's definitely not the tactics, tactic that today's leaders use when they launch their uh, uh, election campaigns, but Jesus doesn't follow conventional human wisdom. We'll see this again and again as we continue into the book of Mark, and this moment is no exception. Instead, he follows the prompting of the Holy Spirit and is led away from the masses. Why? Well, we know a little bit more about what happens in the desert from the Gospel of of Matthew. Satan targets Jesus' identity and tempts him based on instant survival needs, security and water, or shelter, rather, and finally power. Power. Essentially, you could say that Satan is offering Jesus the success of his mission without the pain and suffering of the cross. If only, if only he would bow to Satan's rule on earth. But God... But God was with him, and Jesus withstood the temptation of darkness and the dangers of the wild, and using the word of God, Jesus battled Satan, and he won, and he won. It was a vital moment, but it was just a shadow of the greater battle that would come three years later on the cross. Also, and this is pivotal, by tempting Jesus, Satan also gives credibility to the claim of who Jesus was and is. He first tried unsuccessfully, Satan, when, when, when Jesus was at his most vulnerable, when he was a baby. Now we see him uh, tempting Jesus. Later, Satan would attack him through the, the high priests of God's church and Jesus' followers, and it would appear to all watching Jesus being strung up on a cross like the worst of criminals that he had lost the war against Satan for the salvation of mankind. But we know now that the cross was actually Satan's ultimate defeat and Jesus' ultimate victory. Jesus follows God through it all, obediently and humbly. Now, as we're going to see next week, Jesus returns from the desert and and he launches into his public ministry full-time, bringing the good news. We've looked at only five verses in this awesome book today, but I, 
I said that, and as I said, there's a lot packed in here, so rich in context, Old Testament stuff, and and how things are coming to life and and coming coming, uh, as it was promised, full of significance for the world. But I want to take the remainder of time to consider what does this mean for us, for you, for me? The short answer is a lot, but of course you know I'm not going to stop there. But first, I want to share the story of someone, Michaela. She's part of our wider Common Ground Church community who, in the midst of difficult circumstances, put her trust in the good news. Watch this short video to see a bit of how her decision for Jesus impacted her life. My name is Michaela Jacobs, and this is my story. I am 16 years old. I love gymnastics, swimming, ballet, jazz, dancing, and hanging out with my friends. My parents have been taking my sister and I to church for most of our lives. It was when I was asked to consider becoming an Ignite leader in 2015 that I really started personally placing my trust in God, and my faith became more real and not just an extension of my parents' belief. In 2018, I started high school, and things changed. Where before I had lots of friends and activities, my new school didn't seem to provide either. I began to get badly bullied, and without my friends, I felt lonely and vulnerable. The bullying had got so bad that I ended up missing some months of school. After some of the toughest moments I'd experienced, we decided to get me into another school. Even after I got this fresh start, I knew I was facing having to repeat the grade due to my missed months of the year. The one thing that kept me going throughout this ordeal was my sport. I was working hard and putting in many extra hours to perfect my technique for competitive rhythmic gymnastics. But while training for the rhythmic national gym games, I injured my spine, bruising all the vertebra and slipping one of the discs. On top of how bad school life had been that year, it was losing my favorite sport, and all the hard work that I'd put in that year made me feel most dark and hopeless. In my frustration and anger, I pushed God away too. How could he take the one thing I felt I had after everything else had been taken? My dad mentioned what was happening to me to one of his squash partners, who was also a pastor at the church. The pastor asked if he and his wife could pray for me. So one Sunday after church, they prayed for healing and anointing me with oil and brought me before God in a way that I was too distant to do for myself. That felt like the start of a turning point. The doctors and physios I had been seeing had referred me to a neurosurgeon. When I went for the assessment with him, he gave me a clean bill of health and said I could start gymnastics and dance again from the start of 2019. We were so grateful. Not only that, but to my surprise, the school was happy with my academics and were going to let me progress to the new grade with my new friends. As 2019 began, I realized through all the bad things that happened to me, it was God who actually had been carrying me through all of it. That, although he didn't take away the experience, he was right beside me and he is bigger and more in control than I ever knew. And that his love for me is stronger than all the hardships. I felt like I needed to be obedient to his call on my life and be baptized. So in October 2019, I got baptized. It felt like another turning point for me. I had changed from gymnastics to focus on training to become a dancer. I was awarded a scholarship to train for Unique Dance Academy in Cape Town. Life seemed so different from just a year ago when there were times that I wondered if I'd ever be able to dance again, let alone travel the world or do it competitively. I know there will still be hardships in my life, but my experience has shown that God cares more than I could ever realize, that he promises to be with me and that he has been faithful through it all and is worthy of my trust and faith. He is the perfecter of my faith. Thank you for letting me share my story with you. Cool. Awesome story. Trust and healing and, and uh, 
Yeah, breakthrough. I want to pose three things to us today. Handles, if you will. And don't feel like you need to kind of take them all and try to remember them all. If there's one that point sticks out at you, just grab hold of it and see and take and grapple with it this week. First on baptism. I was waiting for the lights to come on. Of course, I forget. By, by getting baptized, Jesus was setting an example for us to follow. We know that baptism is different now. And, and let me tell you, Jesus and his disciples would baptize many people during his life. And then he would go on to instruct all of his father's followers throughout the centuries to get baptized in his name. We see that in Matthew 28 as a form of initiation into the community of his disciples and into the adventure of following him. We saw a snippet of what that adventure can look like. And it's something we still do today. We, we still need to get baptized once in, in water as a form of obedience to him after we place our faith in Jesus. To be clear, baptism doesn't save us. By virtue, by, uh, by, in fact, by virtue of a person becoming a Christ follower, they too have been washed clean by Jesus himself. So like Jesus, they are already spiritually clean by the time they're baptized. So by instructing us to be baptized after salvation, it wouldn't, make us, it, it wouldn't be to make us clean, but rather that Jesus joins us in his own baptism as being an act of obedience to God. So it's the public declaration of our submission to a higher and ultimate authority in our lives. So if you'd like to learn more about baptism, check out the church website. It's got an awesome resource there. The information desk can help point you to that. Or if you're a Christ follower and have not yet gotten baptized, can I encourage you? Come and speak to one of the eldership team. I'll be hanging out the coffee cart at the end, at the end of the meeting. Um, we'd love to just process that with you something we believe in because Christ tells us so. Secondly, on trial and temptation. You notice that it was God, specifically the Holy Spirit, who prompted, and other translations say, uh, sent, drove, pushed, actually, uh, him into the wilderness, not into temptation. So it wasn't God who was tempting uh, Jesus. Satan was, to be clear. But God allows us to be tempted. There are all sorts of examples in the Bible that illustrate this, but the purpose is always greater. In this instance, God shows us two things. Secret victory over temptation precedes God releasing us into public ministry. Secret victory over temptations precedes God's releasing, God releasing us into public ministry. If we can't be trusted in secret to do the will of God, then we can't be trusted in public to do the will of God. Now that's got some teeth in it, but take it in and, and consider. Secondly, the degree to which we are dependent on him, the degree to which we are dependent on Jesus, will match the degree to which we are usable by Jesus. Let me say that again. The degree to which we are dependent on Jesus, who is God, will match the degree to which we are usable by him. In the desert, Jesus was hungry, endangered, and tempted, yet God gave him everything he needed to survive. God provided the scriptures he needed to overcome the, the lies that Satan told. God provided the angels to protect him from the wild animals. Since Jesus was doing the Father's will, he had the Father's protection. And maybe some of you uh, who are sitting in a place of trial or even temptation, uh, maybe you're wounded, maybe you're, you're, you're in a place where you just feel stuck. 
Or maybe it's a cycle, whatever it might be. Maybe this is something to take to Jesus, to trust him with, because he gets it. He gets it. He went through it. Thirdly, on receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't do justice on something, actually someone, the Holy Spirit, in a minute or two. So consider this a teaser, possibly a provoke for some of us. In today's short passage, we don't just see Jesus being baptized. We don't just see God the Father providing and protecting Jesus during temptation. But we also see Jesus receive God the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for us? Many of us may approach the idea of receiving or being filled with the Holy Spirit with caution, as it can seem mystical or maybe a little weird. But I want to debunk some of those ideas by offering some insight. In John, another gospel, chapter 6, we see Jesus tell his disciples that his words are, quote, full of the life, full of the Spirit and life, full of the Spirit and life. And in two different letters from Paul, in Ephesians 5, he, first he tells the church there to be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on to t- list uh, several traits of what a Spirit-filled life looked like, a Spirit-filled life. Then in Colossians, writing to that church, Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and goes on to list the traits of a word-filled life. Spirit-filled life, word-filled life. I encourage you to check it out. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, it turns out that both lists are essentially the same. So to receive or to be filled by the Spirit is to be dominated and saturated by the Scripture, the Word. But to let it dwell in us richly is not the same as knowing it as information. It's one thing to read Scripture. It's another thing to let it dwell in us richly by allowing the Holy Spirit to come and reveal the love of Jesus to you in it. I think this is summed up most beautifully in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's up on the screen too, I think. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power, power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In short, Receiving the Holy Spirit is part of the Christ follower's journey and has life-changing implications from the inside out. So I encourage you, read Scripture, study it absolutely, but also ask God to make it dwell in you deeply as you experiencing Him, as you experiencing him through it. I'd love to call the band up. Um, as I land here, um, simply put... The world was waiting for and needed a Savior. And I tell you today, Jesus Christ is that Savior. He is the message and the light and life, the good news. And apart from him, it's impossible to know what is real, what really matters in this world, and what is really good. He brings a clarity and order to the chaos and confusion and even amidst the chaos and confusion of the day. He wasn't swayed by political undertones or struck favors with with anyone willing to push his agenda. I mean, he withstood the prince of lies 
and darkness on the cross. And he won. He won. And I said it in the beginning, the sheer magnitude of the claims of Jesus warrants investigation for all of us. As British writer G.K. Chesterton, he puts it this way, paraphrased, if I found a key on the road and I discovered that it fit and opened a particular lock in my house, I would assume most likely that the key was made by the lockmaker. And if the teachings of Jesus Christ so obviously fit the locks of so many human souls in so many times and in so many places, then they must be designed by the heart maker. Just like the followers of those days, Jesus, who, who knows us because he made us, invites us to know him. Will you seek him? I hope so. He is the light in the darkness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And for those who already believe, we're not off the hook. There's so much more to discover and come closer to Jesus. If we look closely enough, we discover that every part of the Scripture, even Lindsay said it as she made the announcement about the Old Testament study in Kids Rock and Ignite, if we look closely enough, we discover that every part of Scripture points to the good news in some way. And this passage is no exception. Just as Jesus' mission was about to begin, it points to his victory. Because of him, we're able to know him. Because of him, we're able to trust him, experience him, and be part of his mission. Let's sing in response to what we're hearing. Uh, Mark, you've got, you've got it. Um, but that's, that's all I, I have. I just would love those three things baptism, trial, temptation, and receiving the Holy Spirit. If any one of those things really stood out to you, as we respond in this time, whether you're quiet, silent, or loud, just grapple with one of those. If, if God is just nudging you, do so.